You know, when you think about every human being, there's a couple of things that we have in common, and this is one in particular. Every single person is going to do one of two things. They're either going to invest their lives in something worthwhile, or they're going to throw away their lives at nothing. What makes the difference between the two? It's going to be a matter of priorities. What do you prioritize? There was a uh, cookbook a number of years back in which uh, this particular author in writing it had a recipe for a rabbit stew. And this author had a great, just, just a great setup in how everything was going to be laid out. And I love the first step. The way the cookbook read is, the first step to make this delicious recipe is to catch a rabbit. Now, that's a writer that knows first things first. They've got their priorities established. Well, as we are going into the book of the Old Testament book of Ezra, one of the things that we see about Ezra is this is a guy who is conjuring up a recipe as well. And in this case, he's cooking up a way to get the Israelites out of a spiritual rut. And there's a means of spiritual lethargy that people had fallen into. We're in chapter 5 of the book of Ezra, and so if you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to go ahead and take them out and turn with me there. Ezra chapter 5. Sometimes people have asked me, how come you don't put the verses up on the screen? And uh, I've shared this before. I don't put them up there because I want you to bring your Bible and have to look at it, whether it's a paper Bible or a digital Bible. And when you've got that Bible in front of you, it's easier to make notes, to, to annotate the things that you've learned from God in the moments in which you spend time in his word. So when we're bouncing in other passages, I'll throw those up on the screen. But generally, I'm trying to get you to go to the passage with me. And uh, so Ezra chapter 5, but that's not the only place we're going to be looking. Keep your finger there, and you can also turn to the right and go to the book of Haggai, in Haggai chapter 1. And while you're turning to both, let me just give you a sense of bearings of where, th where we are in this story. Um, in chapter 4, the Jews had begun building the temple that God had freed them from uh, their captivity and allowed them to go back in the land to begin to establish worship anew. And so as a result, they went, but they began to face opposition. And we saw in chapter 4, verse 4, that they got very discouraged and they got afraid. And thus things had begun to slow down. And then we looked at verses 6 through 23. And the interesting thing about 6 and 23 is that is not a current event. When you read those verses, you're meant to see that as Ezra anchors them to other times and other leaders in history, that these are events that happen uh, between 20 and 60 years later. So you see these various oppositions, and you're just meant to realize that did not happen at this time. Uh, but that kind of government opposition, that's not what's happening when Ezra is writing about the events in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. It's something else different. In verse 24, we see the people stop their work. But again, it has nothing to do with the government intervening. So over time, what was it that kept them down? Initially, we saw it was fear and discouragement, but something else kicked in and prevented them from finishing the work that God had given them to do. Well, the answer to that is found in another book of the Bible, which is why I'm having you take your Bibles, keeping your finger there, and go to the right to the book of Malachi to get the bigger picture, or excuse me, the book of Haggai to get a bigger picture. So Haggai is going to give us insight into the hearts of the people. Now, when all this comes on the scene, there's a lot of turmoil that's going on in the world, right? Cyrus has been the leader in the known world, and then when we get to chapter 5, things have changed. Cyrus is no longer the leader of the Medo-Persian world. Now we're going to a fellow named Darius. 
And Haggai and both Zechariah, those prophets, they show up and they're filled with the Spirit of God. And you see in Haggai chapter 1, verse 2, what the problem is. It says, this people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Remember, we've got a 16-year break from when the opposition came on them, and now nothing has happened for that long. Now, when you, some of you had this happen to you, you break an arm or a leg, and then you get a cast put on over it, right? What happens when they take the cast off? You look at that arm or your leg, and you realize that thing has shrunk. There's an atrophy that has occurred because you're not using it. You're not exercising that limb. Well, this is what's going on with Israel and their faith. They've been living in fear and discouragement, and as a result, their faith has fallen into an atrophy, and they're not doing what it is that God would have them to do. So a lethargy's taken over, and the priority of the worship and the holiness of God has not become paramount for them. It's faded. And Haggai's the one who comes on the scene to say, look, we have to come back to this priority of the worship of a pure, perfect, and holy God who loves us. We have to do that. And he challenged these people based on what their priorities had become. Now, verse one, or chapter 1, verse 3 of Haggai, it says, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? So you see the problem. They had no problems working and building and developing their own homes, but the issue they had here had to do with God, God's issue with them didn't even have to do with nice homes. Let me just get that out there, all right? That was not the problem. The problem was priorities. And the priority was, as long as my temple's not being built, then my worship is not being paramount in your life. It doesn't have a priority. You have other things that are kicking in. And so what he does in chapter, or in verse 5, is he calls them out to say, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, and here's a little sentence you want to underline. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Can I just tell you what some other translations, how they worded this? Think carefully about what you're doing. Look at what's happening to you. Think about your life. Give careful thought to your ways. Haggai goes on to say, you've sown much, but you harvest little. You eat but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. In other words, God says, since you don't have me as your priority, he was going to throw things into their lives, the things that they were investing their lives in, to show them this is going to amount to nothing. You want food? That's going to be your priority? That comes from me, and I can take that away. You want these other things in your life as a priority? That ultimately comes from me, and I can take those away. And it was God's way of taking these circumstances to force these people to stop and to examine their own lives and their spiritual priorities. And that's where we come to in Ezra, chapter 5, verse 1. So let's flip back there to Ezra. Verse 1 says this, When the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtel and Yeshua the son of Jehozadak arose 
and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now note that. These people aren't responding to self-help gurus. They're not responding to somebody who's just extremely motivational in their speaking. This is, thus saith the Lord. These people are responding to the clear revelation of God. In our day, it would be like me pulling out my Bible and pointing to a verse and says, what does this verse say? Okay, now, how does your life align with that? That's what's happening in this instance. It's, it's bringing them back to the issue of what's black and white, what is true and what is not. What has God said? And what are we doing in light of that? And it's forcing the people to ask, am I investing myself in the things of God or am I throwing my life at nothing? So it was the preaching of the word of God that arrested them and forced them to first repent. And then after they would repent, reestablish God's priorities. But I don't want you to miss something there in verse 1 at the end of it. It's such an important part where it says they did it in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Talk about a comforting verse. They hadn't really been, they, they've gotten spiritually lethargic with God, but he hasn't abandoned them. He is still walking with them, and particularly as they seek to obey, obey him. So you look at the difficulties, though, that God brought into their lives, as per what Haggai stated, and the hardships. And these are actually the proof that God is still with them. He's using them to chasten them, to open their eyes, to get them to stop and to consider their ways and their walk with him. And so in many ways, I mean, that's, a, that's something we all need to consider. Not all hardship comes to us as a result of sin, but all hardship should force us to stop and to ask, is this God's servant in my life to direct me towards him in a way that I'm not walking with him? or in a way that I need to trust him more, or in a way that I need to grow in him more. God uses those kinds of difficulties, and he's invaded their lives to say, I want you to keep your priority of worship unto me. Don't throw your life away at the lesser things, which are nothing. Aren't you glad at the end of the book of Matthew, when Jesus gives his charge, you remember the very last words he says are, Lo, I am with you always even to the very end of the age. That doesn't mean that Jesus makes the work easy, and it also doesn't mean that whatever we're going through, that it's going to meet our expectations. Sometimes God will do things, and it won't necessarily align with the way we think it should work out. But it does mean God is not impersonal. He is a very personal God, and he is here, and he is going to walk with you, encouraging you to walk with him. Well, you've got the governor of the area at that time, and he sees what's going on, and he has a big concern. Because remember, when Darius takes the throne, a whole lot of the kingdom is all in turmoil. And so there's people in rebellion, people doing things, and so he's wondering, are these Jews setting up for a rebellion? And if I just let it happen, am I going to be implicated in that? So he doesn't know what to expect or what's happening. And so as a result, he didn't want to protect someone who might be showing themselves to be a traitor. And so he goes and he begins to acquire them. Now, I personally don't think this guy is persecuting them. And you'll see why as the story continues to unfold. But I think at the end of the day, this is a secular guy who's just purposing to do his job. 
He's responsible for a region, and he's making sure things are done rightly and in order. And so in verse 3, he comes to the Jew to ask, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? In other words, where'd you get your building permit? Can I see it? Um, You know, we're about to go through some construction here. And we're going to be changing the stage and making it more permanent. We're going to be opening up the foyer, setting up a family resource center, making some adjustments. Well, we're having to go through the county and work through the whole permit thing. And uh, it's never easy dealing with government and the bureaucracy. A lot of times that happens. But you know what? If we have difficulties and we have problems, here's what we can't do. They're persecuting us. They're making us do this in accordance with what the county requires. No, that's not the case at all. In fact, if the building inspector came up and says, I want to see your permit, what's the right answer? Here it is. We come back because we're going to comply with and obey uh, with the government and the ordinances that have been established. And we can never look at that and go, see how they're persecuting us. You know, they're making us, they're making us show this paperwork. It's like, no, they're doing their job. And here, that's what the Jews do. He comes and says, who authorized this? And they have the paper. They say, they respond in a great way. Verse 4, they don't hide. They don't act like this is a rogue act. Verse 4 says, we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building. Traitors usually don't do that. They go into hiding. These guys say, here's our names. You can write it down. And in verse 5, we find, and the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. You need to underline that. The eyes of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius, and then a written reply be returned concerning it. So you see that. These people now have repented, and now they had this mindset concerning worship under God. And so the work, they just continued until they had to take a break, and then they're ready to go. And then we get to read the letter, the correspondence that happens, the official document, and that begins in verse 7. They were sent to the king Darius, and it says, To Darius, the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we've gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones, and beams are being laid in the walls, and their work is going on with great care, and is succeeding in their hands. And then we asked those elders and said to them, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? And we also asked them their names, so as to inform you, that we might write down the names of the men who were at their head. And thus they answered us, saying, We're the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. Now note this. Do you see the humility of the Jew in this text and where they're coming from? That's a huge part of the repentance that we've seen there in verses 1 and 2. They have owned their part of the problem. We didn't walk with God. He had to chasten us. Note that, that a priority of worship with God has to begin with repentance. It has to begin with repentance. Folks, today in Christian circles, what is most elevated? Often it's forms of self-help how to be better at this, how to do this, how to accomplish this. And there's a place for that, but not when repentance becomes downplayed. Often repentance is where we need to begin. That is the point often of failure and of sin. 
Biblically, repentance is prioritized. And a worship and obedience under God follows that kind of a repentance. That's exactly what's happened here. That's what they're doing. So they continue on with the facts. Verse 13. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. And also the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon, these King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one of those whose name was Shezbazar, whom he had appointed governor. And he said to him, take these utensils, go, deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt in its place. Then that Shazbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. And from then until now, it's been under construction and not yet completed. So again, they're just giving them the facts. Things that can easily be sought out, things that can be researched. And they have a confidence that because they're speaking truth, they can just deliver that to the governing authorities. Verse 17, now if it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. And if it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God at Jerusalem, then let the king send to us his decision regarding this matter. You know, this is, this is kind of a big deal for us as Christians. Is it okay for people to consult with and to work with the political and governing authorities? Everybody say, yeah. Yeah, of course it is. In fact, a lot of you work in those realms. And let me tell you, I am so glad of that. You are salt and light, bringing about an influence for Christ to the degree that you can into these areas of the government. And so when it comes to us, granted, we can't put our hope in the government. We can't put our hope in who it is that's going to take over in high offices. But that doesn't mean that we can't work with them and we can't work beside them, and we can't uh, see God working through them. Can I just make a little side note? This is why it is important for us as Christians that when it comes time to things like voting, we do this. It's a very unique time in history, but we actually have a say into who our leaders will be. And so it's good to make our voice known, and it's good to appeal to leaders, whether they're godly or not. Good to appeal to leaders to do that which is right, and it's good to have a say into those who will represent us. Jack, are you getting all political on us? I think all I'm doing is I'm getting biblical on you. This is a great opportunity that we have. And we do want to evaluate and we want to be wise to pick people that are going to lead in as godly of a manner as possible. And that ought to help us in deciding who it is that we will vote for. But you've got to remember something too. God even used pagan ungodly men to accomplish his will he did so far you've got cyrus a pagan ruler and that's the individual god uses to start the work and then you've got darius an ungodly pagan ruler and that's the individual god's going to use to finish the work so the people didn't have any say and god was still going to be very much at work what do you do you continue to follow god you continue to trust God. You continue to be ready to take him at his word, to speak for that which is right and what is true and what is just. And then the other thing, we need to consider our ways. 
and are we living in a way such that the priority is such that we are aligning with God's ways, no matter what's going on out here at the government level and the authority level? I have a feeling if we prioritize more of the way we live, more than we prioritize the way we hope everybody else will live, God will use that to begin to make a difference in the world. But God ultimately is the one who has to do that work with all of them. We have to consider our ways. What's the priority in our life? Is it the worship and obedience of God? And is that the way that we're walking? Government has a place in society. You can amen me on that. Government has a place in society. God has used it as a means of establishing order. Now, when it comes to the church, does the church hold to a higher order? Yes, it does. But what happens when someone's going to step outside the bounds of what God has established through the church? That's where he's put government. And in and through government, there's going to be another means of boundaries that God establishes to work in and through. But we have to work as best as we can within those boundaries that God has established. Now, what happens when they do this? Well, we get the rest of the story. You have to go to chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Darius gets the word, and he did do a search. He said, I'll check you up on that. And then verses 3 through 5, he gives a report. And then in verse 6, the governor is called upon to see that this task that's going on in Jerusalem is not only finished, but follow with me in Ezra 6, verse 7, where Darius says, you leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you're to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God, and the full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river, and that without delay. You see that? The government was going to fund this, and God worked in the heart of the king to make sure that this happened. This goes back to what we've talked about many times in 2 Chronicles. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. He's finding the resources to work with the people that are going to obey him and love him and walk with him. It reminds me a little bit of the story um, back in the book of Exodus. Y'all remember when Pharaoh says, all the Israelite baby boys, throw them in the Nile River. And so Moses Moses' mother births him. And technically, I guess you could say she complied. Uh, she didn't drown him. She put him in a basket and put him in the river. And he floated down. And you remember what happens? You've got Pharaoh's daughter taking a bath. She's out there in the river. She sees this. She takes this baby aside. She says, what a cute little boy. And so her heart's endeared to him. And here comes Moses' sister. She comes alongside. And she says, you know, if you need someone to nurse him, I can get one of the Hebrew women, a.k.a. my mom, and, and his mom, to take care of him. You remember what she says? Yes. You go. You get her. And then she says this, and pay her wages. How's that, nursing moms? Would you like someone to pay you to take on that duty? The eyes of the Lord moved to and fro to strongly support those whose hearts were his. Verse 9. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs for a burnt offering to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, anointing oil, as the priests in Jerusalem requested, is to be given to them daily without fail, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Note that. 
an ungodly leader wanted prayer. Pray for me. And I issued a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. I love that. Darius said to his people, consider your ways. That's what I want you to do. And if you stick your nose in this business, I'll make it my business to stick you on a pole. So he, he, he took him to task here. And this goes back to, you remember in chapter 5, verse 1, that part that I asked you to underline. The God of Israel who was over them, the one who was with them. Here you see it. God is just blowing them away with how even though they hadn't been faithful, he still is. And it began with them considering their ways. And once they considered their ways, that was to lead them to repentance. And once they repented, they were to evaluate their priorities, to then align their worship into the person and the character of God. I can summarize it this way. Consider your life to invest it in God's priorities. Don't throw it away or let it drift into nothing. And this is what trusting God looked like for them in particular. A steady faith over the things that you don't have control over, you continue to be faithful. And in the things that you do have a control over, to be faithful with that. You want to see spiritual renewal, Blue Ridge? We need to consider our ways. Tom, you want to go ahead and bring your worship team up here? Let me just ask the rest of you while they're making their way up. Spiritually, where are you? Are you going through a season of a spiritual lethargy? All of us do at times. All of us do and have at times. This text shows you what you can do to break out of it. And first, it does come back to consider your ways. Allow your life to be examined. And it begins here. Are you consistently in the study of God's word for the purposes of hearing from him? To align yourself with him. And to hear it through your local church as well and through other believers. And if not, if that's not where you are, then part of considering your ways is repent. Repent from not coming to him and be deliberate that you would do so and go to his word. And then when you're reading that word, you know, it's kind of like rubbing your hand along the text. And all of a sudden you feel that sharp burr, that rough spot there up against your hand. That you would evaluate that and say, okay, this is God speaking to either my life or my culture. And rather than trying to get him to change to you, you be the one to change to it. To be ready to make that adjustment. There was a couple that was going on this uh, extended vacation. And as they go to the airport, they're checking up all these bags. And this wife had 16 bags to check on board the flight. And the husband is standing there, and he's kind of rolling his eyes. And he leans over his wife, and he says, you know, sweetheart, I wish you would have pack, uh, packed the piano as well. She looks at him. She goes, ha, ha, very funny. And he said, well, the tickets were on the piano. So if you had packed it, we could go on this trip. And all too often, that's what happens with us, right? We get the priorities mixed up. We're focused on this. When God says, no, consider your ways, align and focus on this. Consider your ways to invest it in God's priorities. Don't throw it away. Don't let it drift into nothing.